then I got, you know, I fight, I get it off, and then I'm walking righteous. I'm acting righteous, I'm thinking righteous, and then sin is around the corner, and then it jumps out again, and then, ah, it got me again. (laughs) But sin, sin is not something external to us. It's not something drawing us. But sin is something that is internal to us, compelling us to walk where we want to walk. James tells us in his letter in the first chapter around verse 14 that when we fall into temptation and to sin, it is because we were carried away by our own lust. So there's some kind of process, some some kind of progression, something that's happening inside of us that carries us away And I think that in the garden is where we see clearly this process and the steps that lead us to sin. And so I want to take just a few minutes. I know that was a long introduction, but I think it's a good setup, right? And and revisit this text. And and, and instead of, like I mentioned before, instead of kind of going through takeaways, I'm going to pause at certain points and just ask questions. Please don't answer them out loud. But please do think about them. Please do entertain the questions. Now, just by way of a little bit of a text background, uh, the book of Genesis, right? The book of beginnings, believed to be written by Moses as revealed to him by God, probably is the most familiar book in the whole Bible. For many of us, it's the location of probably the first Bible verse that we ever memorized, Genesis 1 and 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Maybe number two was, and Jesus wept. <laughs> but because all scripture is inspired and because all scripture is beneficial for living life, the opening chapters of Genesis, and it's important for us to understand this, is more than just the narrative account of the creation of the world, but These introductory chapters are chock full of spiritual truths, of spiritual principles and doctrines that are further developed and explored throughout the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just for an example, for for, for example, the principle of sowing and reaping. We see that in Genesis 1, 11, and 12 when God says, let every type of vegetation bring forth its same type. What you reap, what you sow. We also see the plurality of God's nature in Genesis 1.26 when he says, let us make man. We see the special position that man holds in God's creation as well in Genesis 1.27 when he says that they have made man in his image. And we also see in Genesis 2, through 24, the institution of marriage between a man and a woman when it says, therefore, for this reason, shall a man leave his mother and father and shall cleave to his wife. And in chapter 3, we get a firsthand account of how sin manifests in the world. But I don't think that it's written so that we would lament the eating of the fruit. It's not written so that we would badmouth Eve and Adam. It's not written so that we could talk about what if and, oh, wouldn't it have been nice if they hadn't, all those kinds of things. But it serves a greater purpose, I believe, as it provides a window 
into my nature. It provides a window into your nature and how it leads us to disobey God. See, the setup of Genesis 1 is to deliver the, 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 the climax of the story. Genesis 1, or Genesis, the uh, first couple of chapters, especially chapter 3, is setting up the fact that you need a Savior. That's what it's setting up. If we read it divorced from that, we miss the thrust of the book. So in chapter 3, the serpent gets to the newest resident of the garden, one-on-one, and begins to quiz her about God's word. By asking a simple question, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Here's my first question. How well would you do if Satan began to quiz you about God's word? If he came to you with scripture and just changed it a smidgen, left out a key word, took two scriptures from one place and another one from another place and tied it together, would you say, man, that sounds like Bible to me? Hmm. Eve corrects the serpent in verse 2. Kudos to Eve. She says, we can eat from any tree except for the one in the middle of the garden. But then she goes even further in verse 3 and adds a little extra flavor. We can't even look at it or touch it, she says. Or will die. And it seems like that should be the end. Satan quizzes her. She comes back with scripture. Adds a little more on top of that. And it seems like it should be case closed. But the serpent goes on and says, it's not that you will die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. Because he knows that when you eat that fruit, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. So Eve considers what the serpent says and and begins to examine the fruit. And she makes a determination that what she's heard from the serpent and what she sees with her eyes is compelling enough, get this now, to override what God has said. And she eats the fruit. And she doesn't stop there, but she gives Adam some too. Scripture says they then realized that they were naked. They get some fig trees and to cover themselves. And when they heard God coming, they were afraid and hid themselves. So what I want to talk about here is, is that the first step of us being led to sin, of us being carried away, is that we listen to the wrong sources. The serpent starts the conversation with Eve innocently enough. What is it that God said? But his intention, get this now, isn't to gain clarity. It's not because he's confused about what God said, but his intention is to create confusion in Eve's mind. My next question, who have you been listening to that has caused confusion to enter into your mind? Things that you thought that you knew that you knew that you knew all of a sudden are being shaken, challenged. Hmm. Places you never thought you would go, you're beginning to consider going. 
things you never thought you would do, you're beginning to think about, well, maybe. How did that confusion enter into your mind? And, and at first, it seems like Eve is going to be okay. But by the time we get to the end of verse 6, it is clear that she falls for what she is hearing from the serpent. And, and it is important to note, get this, that the serpent doesn't dispute whether or not God said it. That's not the issue. He doesn't dispute whether or not the message, when, 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 God's, when, when ser the serpent says, hey, is, wh what is it that God said? And when she says this is what God said, Satan doesn't say, no, he didn't. He concedes. Okay. He doesn't, he doesn't say that God didn't communicate that to Eve. Instead, what he attacks is the integrity of God. This is very subtle and it's very important, right? He basically says that God is a liar. And unfortunately, Eve falls for it. See, <clears throat> when God gave Adam and Eve instructions for how to inhabit the garden, he was establishing the baseline, the standard, the guidelines, the boundaries for living in his presence not just for living in his presence, but also living in right position in his presence. In other words, being able to submit to what he has said and choosing to do what he has said over and above all over, all others, including ourselves. Hmm. And this is important, right? <clears throat> Sorry. I lost my place here. But the serpent, he comes along never disputing whether or not God has established the guidelines. He doesn't dispute whether or not God has set up standards and uh, principles, but instead the serpent goes to the validity, to the credibility of the guidelines, which is actually an attack on God's character. Because he's saying, Eve, listen girl, how can God be all-knowing how can God be wise and righteous if in this matter he is either wrong or he is lying to you? Because in the day that you eat it, it's not that you're going to die, but you will be like him. This brings me to my next question, and that is, do the people <clears throat> or the things that you listen to believe that God is credible? Or are they at every turn attacking his credibility, questioning if he's telling you the truth or if he really knows what's right and what's wrong? Eve stands here in the garden having previously heard the word of God and now hearing words from the serpent, and she has a decision to make. And what will she do now with these two pieces of conflicting information? On the one hand, God says not to eat of the tree because it will cause us to die. Hmm. And on the other hand, the serpent says that we won't die, but instead you will be like God. And right there is the crux of the matter. Because what we all want, whether you admit it or not, I want it, you want it, is we want to be 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we want to be fielding the prayers of the, of the world and we want to be uh, responsible for holding the cosmos together. No, what we want to be is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. We want to determine and establish our own boundaries. We want control of our lives, and we want to be able to then take those boundaries and move them at our own discretion when it's convenient for us to do so. So when I'm talking about me, my boundaries are pretty wide. When I'm talking about you, they're pretty narrow. And if your boundaries overlap with mine, guess whose boundaries win? This is the fundamental flaw of relative truth. You, you can't have relative truth. I, I, I can't have my own truth and you have your own truth because at some point, those truths are going to they're going to be talking about the same thing and we're not going to agree. So if my truth is just as valid as your truth, then technically then there is no truth. And then there's some people make that argument. But you see how this thing begins to just fall on itself. If I can determine what's right and wrong for me and you can determine what's right and wrong for you, that's okay as long as you stay on your side and I stay on my side. But if all of a sudden what's right for you is to come take something from me, then all of a sudden I want to now impose my right and wrong on you. So I get right back to having to submit to something at some point. What God says is since I made everything, and since I know everything, why doesn't everybody submit to me? And that will keep everything in line. Hmm. And we want to be God. And because of that, right, we will be more inclined, listen to this, to follow, to listen to messages that reinforce that innate desire in us. This is, this is a, a, a weird little story, but I watched this uh, documentary on Netflix called The, 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 the Toys That Made Us, right? It, it, I, I loved it because it was hitting all the toys that I either had or my sister had, and so I was familiar with them. I played with them. I watched the cartoons and all that good stuff, but one of the ones that they were talking about was He-Man, and, and I don't know if everybody remembers He-Man, but what was He-Man's catchphrase? That's right, right? I have the power. That was his catchphrase. And, and watching, what, get this, this is amazing. Watching the cartoon, you know, he, he raised the sword, he, he became He-Man, he went from Adam to He-Man, and he was, you know, he hit the sword at his scared cat, and he became Battle Cat, and then they went off to fight. But here's the thing. This is how you know that there's more to stuff. When they talked to the uh, uh, marketing folks, and they said, look, what is it that we know? They said, we did a survey of kids, a range ages five to eight, little boys. And what came up in all of them is that they felt like they had no power. That they wanted to be in control, but because they were kids in their parents' homes, they didn't have any power. So the marketing folks said, let's design a character who is strong, and not only is he strong, but his catchphrase is going to be, I have the power. Go even further, the commercial that they use to sell the toy shows a little boy being He-Man, the father being Skeletor, and the little boy knocks the dad over and the dad falls and tumbles to the ground, and the little boy declares, I have the power. 
I just say all that to say, you want the power. You want the power. You want the power. You want the power. I want the power. We all want the power. And anything that comes up next to us and says, you can have the power. <sighs> have you heard this new preacher down here? What he's talking about? It's a revelation. You need to come hear it. Well, what's he talking about? Oh, you can have what you want. All you got to do is name it and claim it. You got the power. You, you see? You see where I'm headed? And so what we end up, right, is we end up in this place where messages, it's, it's, it's just a toy. It's He-Man. It's make-believe. But it's speaking to something that's innate, that, that the marketing folks said, we've got data that says this is what they want and this will sell. And this is important for us to get a hold of because our minds, whatever we dwell on, whatever we think about, whatever we are feeding it, I don't care who you are. If you're young, you're old, you're black, you're white, if you're male or female, if you have an education level, a doctorate, or don't have an education, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter your income status, it doesn't matter even if you're saved or unsaved. It impacts us all. What we allow into our minds, what we permit to enter into our thoughts matters, and it has real-life consequences. Next question. What messages are you allowing to enter into your mind by way of what or who you are listening to? Hmm. And do these messages affirm the word of God or do they attack and undermine his words? So we see that the first step that leads to sin is when we listen to the wrong sources. Now, uh, we're going to look at the second and the third steps, but we're going to look at them together because they, they kind of work in tandem. And, and, and the second step is, is that uh, uh, we, we, we don't control our thoughts, right? We let it run wild. And the third step is when we elevate our emotions. Hmm. So look at verse 6, if you still have your Bible open. After the serpent claims to Eve that God lied to her, the text says that Eve noticed three things. First, she saw that the tree was good for food. This saw isn't just kind of a casual passing by, but it's, it means that she gazed at it. And she gazed at it long enough that it caused her to start considering some things. It's not just a casual look, but it's an intense staring that then engaged her mind and makes her begin to consider some things that she hadn't considered before. When it says that the, food was, uh, that the fruit was good, it means it was pleasant, it was agreeable. Her gazing, her staring at the fruit leads her to beginning to think about and consider the fruit. Think about this. And it leads her to a conclusion. <clears throat> Eve says, you know what? After staring at this fruit a while, after looking at it for a while, I, I, I'm coming to a conclusion in that there's actually nothing wrong with the fruit. Uh, in and of itself, right? It's not blemished. It's not spoiled. It, it, it would be pleasant. It would be good to eat as food. 
In other words, Eve is coming up with a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. And she's creating a rationale that doesn't negate God's original prohibition. Now, I've got to credit my oldest daughter with helping me put that into words because we were sitting there and we were talking about it. And I was like, do you see this subtle switch that happens here that Eve basically erects a straw man argument, then knocks it down as justification for why she doesn't need to do what God said? <laughs> look, 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 we, we do this in our everyday life. Let me give you a more present example. God says <clears throat> that a man and woman shouldn't have marriage, outs- uh, shouldn't have marriage, shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. That's God's law. Man comes along and says, well, if you have sex outside of marriage, you could get pregnant and have sexually transmitted diseases, but we've got ways to counteract that so that you don't catch diseases and don't get pregnant, so therefore, sex outside of marriage is okay now. So they've raised, we've raised an argument that God didn't make. God did not say, thou shalt not because you might get pregnant or catch a disease. God said, thou shalt not. We raise a straw man argument that says, well, the danger is we we reason in our minds that we know what what he's trying to keep us from. And then we come up with a countermeasure for that, and then we assume that it's okay. But here's the, here's the rub of it. What we only deal with is the physical. God knows that when a man and a woman comes together, more than just physical stuff happens, but there's something happening at the spiritual level. There's a, there's a joining, there's a com- coming together as one. Which is why, because you could say, well, wait a minute, Minister Wright, that just sounds like, because if it was just physical, people wouldn't get into catching feelings and be all angry when somebody sleeps with them and leaves them. You wouldn't be all hurt and angry because it's just physical. But there's something else happening there. And God knows that that something else that's happening, no scientist, no laboratory, no manufacturer, nothing can come up with something to counteract that. But what do we do? We erect the straw man argument, knock it down, and think that it's okay now. Completely disregarding that that's not the reason why God has made the prohibition. The second thing it says is that she noticed it was a delight to the eyes. This delight means that she didn't just, it didn't just make her happy, but it actually carries with it It was desirable. There was a lusting for it, a longing of one's heart. Lastly, it says she noticed that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And again, this desirable means to covet, to take pleasure in, to desire greatly. So we could read the verse like this. Eve, after gazing at the tree, began to consider and eventually determined that despite it not being the reason that God gave for not eating the fruit, that there was really nothing wrong with the fruit and that it would be good to eat. And the longer that Eve gazed at the fruit, the more she was convinced that it was good. And when she was convinced that it was good and that it was okay to eat, she began to desire it and long for it, so much so that she began to covet the fruit and desire it greatly because it would give her what she ultimately desired, to be the determiner of what's right and wrong. Next question. What things have you convinced yourself are good 
in you? What things have you convinced yourself are good for you? And what we see, right, is that listening to the serpent sends Eve down a path of looking at the fruit, seeing it differently than she did before. And I say before, right, because uh, when the serpent first asked her about the fruit, Eve said they couldn't even look at it. Those were Eve's words. But now she finds herself looking at it, gazing at it. Uh, and here, right, it starts the process in her mind, which leads to some feelings and emotions in her heart. And she begins to desire it. She begins to lust after it, longing for it, coveting it, greatly desiring it, so much so that she takes the fruit and eats of it. And ultimately, how Eve felt about the fruit overruled what God said about the fruit. And what should become clear to us is that what we hear, what we see, doesn't just wash over us, but it has a way of entering into our minds. And, and once it is in there, right, it, it, it tries to establish roots. It doesn't want to leave. It wants to stay. <clears throat> and it begins to give birth to other thoughts related to it. And before long, what we thought was just a passing thought becomes a persistent thought and begins to then dominate our thoughts, which then pulls our hearts into it. Because what we think about, what we dwell on, will be what we desire. And what we desire begins to burn within us, longing to be satisfied. And if we keep feeding it, we will begin to come up with reasons and explanations and justifications for why how we feel about something should be able to trump what God has said about that something. This is not new. <laughs> it's what we all do in some area of our lives. If just to make it simple, we, if we think about it in terms of Ten Commandments, one, we ain't got no problem with that one. Two, we ain't got no problem with that one. Three, we ain't got no problem with that one. Four, wait a minute. And then we may say some stuff like this. <clears throat> I just don't think that a God of love, because he says, the word says he's a God of love. I just don't think that a God of love would do this. So I'm going to put this one over here. I'll deal with that one later. Five, okay, six, okay, seven. You know what? You should do this one because that one, you need that one. Eight, nine, ten. Uh, yeah, this, this was written a long time ago, and I just don't think that one applies anymore. So I'm going to put that over here. Think about this. You, you all excited. You got hired at your little job. And you go in and the boss says, we're so happy to have you, Murph. So glad we've been waiting for you to start. Here's a list of your responsibilities and, and tasks. And Murph says, well, I'm glad to be here. Let me see that list. And he goes, okay. Yeah, one, I can do that. Two, I can do that. Three, mm. I just don't think that a company like this really wants me 
doing that kind of stuff. So I'm just going to strike that one off the list. But four, five, and six, I'm your man. Right? Yeah, it, it's, it's funny. It's laughable. It, none, none of us would do that. Not only would none of us do that, but if we were the hiring manager and someone did that to us, what would we tell them? <laughs> we wouldn't even be like, oh, no, you misunderstood. No, we'd be like, oh, this was a mistake. It's a good thing we didn't take your ID badge picture yet. Give us the temp one back, and uh, you can hit the door. But, right, I, I, sometimes, right, it's, it's hard for us when we, 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 we think about it in terms of God, and for whatever reason, we take liberties with him that we would not take with other folks. Right? And, and not only would we not take them, but we wouldn't even think about taking them. And if somebody, if we heard about somebody taking those liberties, you all said it. Oh, they should have been fired. So we're not even merciful. Right? So there's this, there's this funny thing that happens in the human heart where the things that God asks us to, we act like are burdensome and are just unfathomable, but he wired us to do them with each other already. And so what he's showing us is that the issue isn't that the ask is unreasonable because you're doing it in your everyday life already. The issue is, is that you don't want to submit to God. It's not that he's being harsh, but it's that you want to be in control. Right? The link between what we think about and what we do is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 and 5, get this. This is, this is a good verse. If, if you aren't familiar with this verse, write it down, highlight it in your Bible app, whatever you should do, need to do. But Paul says, this is, the context is strongholds that come into our lives. That strongholds that get a hold of our minds and our hearts and how we think and how we act. And, and get this now, you've got to also consider this, that Paul when he's writing these letters, he's not writing these letters to unbelievers. He's writing these letters to folks that are in the church who have claimed a belief and a faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, this is what we've got to do. He says, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion. No, listen now, not arguments in every lofty opinion of someone in a different political party than you. Mm -mm. Not arguments and lofty opinions of people that are in a different racial group than you. Mm -mm. Not those that are in a different age group than you. Not those that are different gender than you. But every argument and lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of Christ. Against the knowledge of Christ. Right? And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's that last part is the kicker. It, it, they work in tandem. He's saying, look, if something comes up, if someone makes an argument or there's an opinion that raises up and it goes against the knowledge of God, against the knowledge of Christ, then guess what we do? We destroy that. We don't even let it stand. But, it, but, but in addition to that, if it enters into my mind, I got to take it captive. Because if I don't, he, Paul says, I, I know it will happen. It'll, it'll just it'll run around in there. And before you know it, it'll have some friends. And then those friends, all of a sudden, they'll have some friends. And before you know it, guess what? You can't think about nothing but 
that thing you were thinking about. And then everything you see makes you think about that thing you were thinking about. And then, here's the, the rub of it. If I wait until those thoughts have friends, and those friends have friends, and those friends have friends, and then try to take them captive, it's like trying to herd cats. I let it get too big. But he says, every thought that enters into my mind, I'm putting it up against the word of God. And if it doesn't match, I take it captive. Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I bring this under authority to you. This thing that I'm thinking is not like you. Now, understand, we can't not think it. That's not what the, the command is. Sometimes we beat ourselves up because, oh, 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 I thought, oh, I thought. No, he says, look, when you think it, grab hold of it. Jesus Christ, this is not in accordance with you. This is not what you would have me to do. I bring it under the authority of your word. This is not how I should be thinking about this situation. This is not how I should be thinking about this person. This is not how I should be thinking about myself. I bring it under authority of your word. Now, that presupposes some things that you know his word. I've got some incorrect thoughts about myself, and I say, well, I bring this under the authority of your word. I believe that what you say about me is true, but then you start asking yourself, well, what does he say about me? That's what we need to find out. So that when that thought comes in, I can then say, no, wait a minute. Right? It's the reason why we have multiplication tables for kids, so that a kid doesn't run around thinking that two plus two is five. No, there's a table that tells you. Take that thought captive <laughs> and bring it under submission to the multiplication table of truth. Last question. What thoughts am I entertaining that I shouldn't be? What emotions and desires have I elevated over and above God's word? And I'm at my conclusion now. This, this is interesting. Do you remember the song? Seeing the, the children up here made me think about it uh, as well. But, oh, be careful, little eyes. It's interesting. Depending on how old you are, you might be like, no, is that, is that hip-hop? Is that what? No, that's a gospel song. I wouldn't call it a church song. It's a religious song. But it, it goes, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above, he is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And I think just asking you guys, man, do you know that song? It, it, it confirms what I thought about is that ah, this song is old. I mean, like when I was in vacation Bible school, old, and I'm only 32. <laughs> I should have brought that thought captive. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm 46, 46. So anyway, but it's an old song. Nobody sings that song anymore. But not only is it an old song, but it has more verses than just that. It goes on to say not just that your eyes should be careful of what they see, but it says that your ears should be careful of what they hear. Your tongue should be careful of what they say. It says it, your hands should be careful of what they do. Your feet should be careful of where they go. Your heart should be careful of what it trusts. And your mind 
should be careful of what it thinks. Man, this song is old. Like I said, some people were like, no, I don't know that song. I see some people nodding. But I believe <laughs> that this song hit the nail on the head. Right? This is going to feel personal. I don't mean it to feel personal. I'm including myself in it as well. But the problem with the church today, the problem with us is that we are not careful. We're not careful. We're not careful with what we let our eyes see. We're not careful with what we let our ears hear. We're not careful with what we let our tongues say. We're not careful with what we let our hands do. We're not careful with where we let our feet go. We're not careful with what we let our hearts trust or our minds think. We are not careful. And as a result, here's what happens. We end up looking, sounding, talking, doing, going, believing, and thinking just like the world because we aren't careful. So the challenge for us, right, is not to be, if you're getting caught up on being sinless, on being perfect, on never messing up, you're missing the point. The point of the sermon is to be careful, to be careful of what you're letting your eyes see, to be careful of what you're letting your ears hear, to be careful of all of those things. Because like we see in the garden, those are the steps that all of a sudden put you at a decision point. And if I have not been careful up to that point, it is no wonder why I keep falling into sin. I haven't been guarding my mind. I haven't been guarding my thoughts. I haven't been filling it with the word of God so that when something presents itself that tickles my ears and makes me feel good, it's no wonder that I jump right into it. This is not easy work. Being a Christian is not easy. It takes us dedicating time. It takes us saying no to some stuff and yes to other things. It won't just happen. We have to be intentional. We have to be careful. Ultimately, all of sin was defeated by Jesus on the cross. And the ability to overcome sin daily comes as a result of the Holy Spirit. What we got to do is give him something to work with. <laughs> we got to put ourselves in the right position. We got to be spending time in God's word, not so that all of a sudden it just becomes clear to us, but so that then the Holy Spirit can then come and begin to make it clear to us. But the first starting place is what we talked about when we started off with our communion today. And that is knowing about Jesus Christ. It's about understanding his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf and about making sure that his blood covers your doorpost. For those at home, if you do not know Jesus Christ and the pardoning of your sins, for those in the sanctuary, if you do not know Jesus Christ and the pardoning of your sins, this time is for you. No judgment. No 
No looking at you sideways because everybody who claims the name of Christ at one point didn't claim the name of Christ. Everybody who is saved at one point wasn't saved. So no one has any, no one came into this world saved. We all had to make that confession. And so this time is for you. If, if you do not know Jesus Christ and the pardoning of your sins, this time is for you. You can uh, follow up with me. You can follow up with one of our uh, elders and our deacons. You can uh, write to the church. You can send an email. Uh, we would be more than happy to talk with you, to spend time with you, to pray with you so that you know that you know that you know. And so that then you can begin to walk alive, not out of fear, because the blood is on your doorpost. You're covered. But now we walk out of love, out of response for what it is that Christ did for us. Christ, because you died for me, I'm going to try to live for you. Amen? Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this word, and we thank you for this time that we've spent together. God, I pray that we would be challenged. I pray that we were convicted but that we were also encouraged to leave here different than the way we came in. God, I pray that just as a reminder, <laughs> we would be thinking about that Sunday and that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us to be careful about what we let our eyes see, that we let our ears hear, that we let our minds think, that we let our hearts trust, what we let our hands do, what we let our tongues say, and what we let our feet go. All so that we can reflect <laughs> clearly the God who saved us. All these things we ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Wasn't that a good reminder on today? <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Minister Wright, for all the effort that you put into that. Thank you. Um, just a few reminders. We want to check your electronic newsletters for the church announcements. Um, also, there is still time to give. As we exit, you may leave your donations in the deposit box just between the lobby doors. And for those of you who are watching online, there should be a link on the screen where you can give as well. So let's all... Um, stand to our feet. Thank you for joining us in worship. Um, thank you all for coming out. Um, and let's, uh, if you're in need of an envelope for giving as well, please raise your hand and we'll, ushers will make sure that you receive one. Okay. All right, let's have prayer and then we will dismiss. Lord, we just thank you for your word on today. Um, thank you for the reminder. Help us to be careful of, of what we hear what we say, what we do, where we go, what we're trusting, and what we think, Lord. Help us to not get off track. Let's hide this word in our heart so that we may not sin against you. Lord, we want to love your word and not despise it, Lord. Thank you for the gift of eternal life, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>